Welcome to this week's edition of the Pete Mazzetti Show. I'm your host, Pete Mazzetti. My guest this evening is Connecticut DOT Commissioner Joe Giletti. Commissioner Giletti, welcome. How are you, my <laughs> Good friend? Good to see you. Good finally in person. I know, finally in person. Last time we did this, we did this through Zoom, and it wasn't as much fun. That's true. So welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Commissioner, tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your background. Well, a little bit about myself. I grew up in New Haven, did all my schooling in New Haven, Southern Connecticut uh, State University, uh, St. Peter's grade school, and Notre Dame High School, and then went on to the University of Connecticut where I worked on an MBA. So, um, you know, I'd say born and raised in Connecticut. Um, in terms of my professional career, I actually was going to be a teacher, and those of you who are familiar with the state system knows that Southern Connecticut was a state teacher's college at one time. Okay. And in 1971, they closed the teaching program because of a glut in the market. I happened to have started on the railroad in June of that year, as a, uh, basically as a conductor. So I've covered just about every position in the railroad. Uh, they recently, the, I was pleasantly surprised when the agency turned around on one of the locomotives and they put on the side of it Joe Gilletti 50 years because it's been 50 years since I started as a conductor and I've worked through the entire Metro North system, went down to Florida to kick off a new rail system down in Florida, came back to Metro North after all the accidents in 2014 and uh, left there in 2017 and then was asked by Governor Lamont to be the commissioner in January of 2019. So I've been the commissioner now going on three years in another month. You like it? Love it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, I've got an extremely, I've been very, very fortunate. I've gone to three agencies in a row that had extremely good people working at the agencies. And right. That makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, as far as what's well, we've got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about today, but recently... We've got time, though, today. Oh, we, we? Got, oh, we, got yeah, all, oh we got all sorts of time. I get, I get a little more time with you today, so exactly, I'm not, it gives exactly. me a chance to talk about the agency. Exactly. Good. Well, let's talk, let's talk about the agency, especially sure. with how you guys handled the pandemic from when it started to where we are now. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. You know, we were very, very fortunate. Governor Lamont, when the pandemic started, you know some other states shut down their rest areas and everything else going into the pandemic. And the governor instead turned around and we let the governor know that the contractors that are out there, as well as our team, wanted to keep things moving along. And uh, he started with that very first weekend going and, and telling the press that Connecticut is open for business. We turned around and took the work that was going on in the highways, because remember initially the highways dropped a good 50 or 60 percent in terms of volume. So we took a lot of the night work and moved it to day so we could increase efficiencies there. We shut down one of the rail lines so that we can complete the positive train control over there. Uh, the contractors came out in full force and it wasn't easy in the beginning. Um, you know, particularly for the people that are out there that have to deal with this thing on a day-to-day -day basis. They had to be out there. They had to be responding to what was going on on the highways. When in the initial time, when you had one COVID hit at a garage, you had to put the whole garage out for 14 days. So we had to come up with ways to go and, you know, mediate the work so that half the group would be in at a time and the other half would be in at another time so you never lost a full garage again. Same thing went on the rail side where when they lost a, whether it was a track gang or a signal gang. Uh, so we had the same issues going on the highway side that were going on the rail side. We had to turn around and look at our bus situation at the time and 
we didn't have the shields set up for drivers, so we had to rope off the front area of the buses okay. and let everybody get on the back, and we had, we called it an honor system, but we were basically foregoing the, you know, fares during that period of time, so that way there we could keep the bus systems going. Found that the bus systems did not go down anywhere near the levels that the rail systems went down because a lot of people were using those buses to go back and forth to places of employment, to hospitals, to nursing homes. So it was essential services that were going on. So we were trying everything possible to protect both our bus drivers, our rail workers, and our highway workers. So um, very interesting from the standpoint that we responded very well when we found out that because of the way things were going on the highway, we needed to try and provide food for the truckers. So we actually were able to work with our federal highway partners to be able to let food trucks go into the rest areas. So there was food being provided for the truckers and we did keep our highways open so that way their you know, essential uh, products could be delivered and eventually all of the DOTs responded as well and that's how we kept you know, the goods and services going. Uh, in the meantime, you know, like everyone else, uh, it was very unfortunate. We had a lot of people come down with COVID. Uh, we've lost some people. The rail systems lost quite a few people initially. And, uh, you know, uh, we've, re we've responded and rebounded from that. So, again, I, kudos go out. You know, uh, you know, when we talk about essential workers, and, and always we're talking about the people that are working in the hospitals, but it's also the people that are responding as emergency workers, the people that work for the state highway system, our Connecticut National Guard, and our employees at the DOT that have to go out and respond to every one of those accidents that are out there and every one of those incidents in the middle of a pandemic. So, Absolutely. yeah, a lot of adjustment, but again, a, a very, very conscientious team that responded well to that, that uh, situation that we had and kept things going for us. Right, now also, with not only are we in the middle of the pandemic, but luckily last winter was a mild winter. So being a snowplow driver in the state probably is a little bit more of a challenge as well, shall we say? Well, I turn around and it's, um, I'm, again, I'm gonna say thanks for bringing that up. Yes, okay? absolutely. Because right now, one of the issues that I have is making sure that we're gonna be able to get more of those snowplow drivers. We call them maintenance um, one on, on our job application, but we're gonna be changing that so people realize what we're looking for is people that are going to maintain the roads and the highways and be able to do the plowing that's necessary. And sure, you have the plowing when it's snow, you have the you know, de-icing before it's snowing, it's turning around and repairing the guardrails when people have gone into the guardrails. And um, you know, it's been, <clears throat> the good and bad of it was with <laughs> the traffic levels being down we saw speeding like we've never seen before. Um, you know, originally yeah. it was 20 to 30 miles over the speed limit. We started seeing more like 50 miles over the speed limit. Oh, wow. And people just feeling that, you know, it was a time that they felt that, you know, they could get away with doing a lot of speeding because not a lot of cars are gonna be pulled over. So uh, very difficult from that end. And, you know, hopefully we'll get into some of that discussion when we talk about some of the things we've tried to do to mitigate that going forward. Well let's, talk, well, let's talk about it. Where do you want, where do you want to start? Okay. Your choice. Sure, I'll start with talking about the fact that we now have um, the ability to do three pilots out there in terms of uh, speed enforcement cameras. And we're working with the state police on it. They're going to be able to use a camera to track cars that are going um, beyond our work, by our work areas in excessive speed and automatically generate tickets. 
Uh, we've been working on this for a number of years to make sure that it's coordinated well with the state police and that we're supporting them in terms of making it easier so that they don't actually have to go out there and confront the driver on it. But the other end of it is, you know, um, when I was down in Florida, I was trying desperately to get cameras put in at railroad grade crossings because we were losing 12 to 15 gates a month with people driving through them. And the only thing I had ever seen that was effective at slowing cars down was the school zones in Florida where they did do camera enforcement and an automatic generation of ticket. Okay. So that worked very, very well. So the legislature, uh, we've got a very, very effective state legislature and they did pass a ruling that allows us to put out three pilot programs and from that pilot programs we'll assess the value of it and whether or not we can use that further. And again, not as a revenue generator per se, um, more to turn around and make sure that we're making it safe for our contractors out there and our state workers that are out there on the highway. So that's the first one that I'll say to you. Let's, sure. let's talk some of the other yeah, um, initiatives. Sure. Absolutely. You know, um, a couple of the cities came to me, but particularly New Haven, I'll, I'll center in on them, talking about traffic calming, that you know, a lot of times state roads go through these uh, cities, and we set speeds according to a national standard, but they wanted the ability to lower some of the speeds when it went through some of the um, you know, downtown areas, and we worked with them to lower those speeds. Um, you know, there's a balance there, because when you lower speed, you're also affecting traffic flow but we've been able to come to some, what I'll say, very conscientious compromises. And at the same time, when we've been sitting down with the city, we've looked at ways to make it more pedestrian friendly, more bike friendly. Almost every new project that we're putting on looks for, even when it's a bridge that's going across a major river, that we're looking for ways to go and take care of the pedestrians, the bikes, and the cars. Because at the end of the day, at one point during the day, every one of us is a pedestrian. We're not all bikers, okay, but we are all pedestrians. So we have to find ways to make it safe for everybody to use our streets, and that's exactly what the DOT is doing right now. Everything they can that makes it safe, makes it convenient, okay, and has the concern of the general public at uh, all times when they're, when they're responding to what are the new projects that are coming in, which Again, it's a very, very exciting time for us in projects. Now, is the Swing, the swing Bridge project one of these? The, when you're talking about the Swing Bridge, are you talking about the Swing Bridge over here? Are you talking about the Swing Bridge on the railroad? Which one, Pete? Both. Okay. Now, in terms of the Swing Bridge on the railroad, we're not looking for pedestrians on the Swing Bridge on the railroad. Okay. Okay. On the other Swing Bridge, yes, we would be the same way when we talk about every one, even when we're talking about the bridge over by New London. We do not want to make sure that that one, again, we've looked at it in terms of how do we make it pedestrian friendly and provide, and we can do it under the existing infrastructure, make way for pedestrian bikes on that as well. So the answer is yes, we try to do that on all of our bridges going forward, and you're going to see more and more of that as everything we try to do is to, to make it, uh, again, pedestrian friendly. Now, I'm sure it's a, sometimes it's sort of a challenge to try to work things in? Of course, because <laughs> what you've got to do is do it in a way that you're protecting the public as well and right. that you're also not affecting the flow of the traffic. You want to have a blend of both. So you don't try to do it in a way that you compromise the traffic flow because then you're just going to create greater bottlenecks and greater problems in the future. So what we try to do is look at it from the standpoint of can we add the additional um, footage that you need to put a bike and pedestrian 
uh, add on to an existing bridge and allow for the people to be able to go and do that going forward. And it's been received extremely well throughout the state as more and more of our, um, our you know, people that are living here in the state are looking for where are those areas that it is pedestrian friendly or bike friendly. Absolutely. Now, as far as where we are in the pandemic now, how is ridership on the rails, the buses, and everything else looking? Is it back to a somewhat normal, or are we still? So, all right, let's talk about it. The highways are at pre-pandemic levels. Okay. okay, so they are fully restored, which means that you're, you know, we're now getting what I would call the normal level of complaints over every time you're doing any sort of construction <laughs> out there because there's a lot of traffic out there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and obviously everybody who's watching this show knows full well that it used to be really nice that you could get on the highway and go, go along and not see an awful lot of traffic. It was the first time that I can ever remember since they've come out with all these apps that you had a greenway all the way down to Washington, D.C. when this thing first started. Absolutely. Not anymore, okay? Right. We've got the regular rush hours going on. We're back to pre-pandemic levels. And the issue for us is that up until now, both on the Boston side, the New York side, your major cities, a lot of the companies have not gone back to full employment in their uh, offices. So we've been monitoring that with New York as well. And where initially we were told that you know, it was going to be last July, then it was going to be last September, then it was going to be last, you know, November, that we would start to see the business opening up. But I think what we've seen is, you know, uh, I start with my agency as an example. Sure. Prior to the pandemic, telecommuting, we had about a dozen people doing it. I was not a big proponent for it. And it wasn't that I was anti-teleworking, but if you run an agency, especially a public agency, you know, you're asked how are you ensuring that the person is there at the computer? Do you have an eye monitor? Are you watching the keystrokes? How do you know that you're getting the production out of, out of the employees that are working there? And uh, so to me, it was more of a question of, you know, one expediency and two, the, you know, the justification that goes along with it. We go into the pandemic we now have over 1,200 people that have been able to telecommunicate. And with that, we were able to accomplish every project that was in our books going forward. We never lost a beat. We were able to turn around and keep the work going. And that's a credit to all the people out there that were very conscientious about it. It's changed my views. And getting back to your question, the businesses that are out there are going through the same thing right now. Are they gonna go back to everybody coming in five days a week? Are they gonna go back to people coming in three days a week? We already knew that some of our commuting patterns were changing because people were starting to do four 10-hour days or three 12-hour days as opposed to the five-day work week. So we were already prior to the pandemic seeing a change in commuting patterns. So now let's go system by system. I've already told you the highways are back up and that's without all the rail traffic being there. The rail um, up until the second wave had started going up, it was at down as low as 20% of ridership. It started going up about 5% every week. We were up a little over 40% of the ridership and the second wave hit and leveled off. We're now dealing with the fact that it's increasing. Every single week it's increasing. 
one of the surprises for us was that the increases were coming in mostly on the weekends. The discretionary rider wanting to go down to New York or going over to Boston as opposed to the regular commuters that were coming in. So we had to increase, we had lowered the number of trains that were operating down to 60% of the normal trains that were out there. We've got it up over 80% right now and we're now looking at when do we have to get it up closer to 100% of the trains that were going there. So on the rail side, you're seeing that we're somewhere, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say somewhere in the 50 to 60% range right now, okay. looking at businesses opening up, looking at more and more that we're headed back to where it used to be, Amtrak experiencing some of the same. On the bus side, it never dropped down like the rail side had, okay? Initially, maybe down to 60%, back up to about 80%, and in fact, some of our lines we had to actually increase busing on during the pandemic because of the number of people that needed that bus service to be able to go to places of employment, to our hospitals, to our nursing homes. So again, I've gotta say a tremendous response effort from both our, all of our contract providers, whether it was TASI and Amtrak on the Hartford Line or Amtrak on Shoreline East or Metro North on, the, on our territory going down to New York City, and all of our bus providers that turned around and responded in a very responsible way to keep the services going through it. And while we're on it, please don't yeah. let me forget to go and say that we would not have been able to keep these services going if it wasn't for our congressional delegation. Well, let's talk about them. Yeah, the, you know, we have you know, five Congress people, two senators, they were able to get CARES funding to us. Okay. That CARES funding kept us going all the way till now. Uh, it allowed us to keep the trains operating. It allowed us to keep our uh, buses going. So um, whether or not you, you, know, you wanna talk the fact that we've got two senators that are extremely influential, uh, Senator Blumenthal and Senator Murphy, you got Rosa DeLauro, who's chair of appropriations. You got Joe Courtney, you know, Jim Himes, okay, John Larson, Johanna Hayes, all of them weighing in very, very heavily to make sure that we were going to have federal dollars available to us that we could turn around and utilize going forward. And it's kept us alive through this whole period of time, and it's got us back to where we're able to start rebounding and responding to the need that's out there. Now, as far as the, we're gonna stay on the federal level for a second. Sure. Recently, I believe earlier today, President Biden signed the infrastructure bill. Let's talk about it. You know, I just came back from a conference down in Orlando where I had the FTA administrator, the FRA administrator, the TSA administrator, all on a panel. We didn't know when we went down there that the infrastructure bill was going to pass by then. But I've made the statement before, you already heard me admit to my age by saying I have over 50 years of, on the rail experience. In all my time on all of these public transit agencies, yep. never have I seen the type of investment that we're looking at right now being available to us. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean? Just on the federal side alone, for Connecticut, bare minimum right now, 5.3 billion for our highways and rail systems. That's what we start with. 35 billion coming in on the Northeast Corridor, which we own a section of, okay, and we work with Amtrak and our partners all up and down the corridor to see what they are the investments. We've actually, if you've gone online, you've seen either the CT35 um, and the CT25 talking about the initiatives that are going on. We've tried to coordinate all the construction activities 
from Massachusetts all the way down to D.C. so that we can lay out how we can start getting trains through this corridor much more quicker and how do we make the right investments. And on top of that, you saw us as a state do our time for Connecticut where we've actually talked about what we're going to do in the rail systems in this corridor all right, to be able to make sure that we can meet the growing demand that's coming in and that we initially, within the next 10 years, can take at least 10 minutes off of the schedule, if not more, as we look at what are the opportunities and we look at purchasing rail cars, purchasing buses. Um, a few months back, we made the announcement that we were successful in getting a grant for Waterbury, where we were able to get over $8 million to be able to get electric buses, work on a solar charging station and electric charging stations for those buses, which we're also doing down in New Haven as well. So um, a lot of things that are being done on that end. Uh, when you talk about that, aside from that 35 billion and 5 billion that I've talked about, there's also another 100 billion that we can competitively go after uh, as a state and if you don't know this, our state every single year has not only taken full advantage of every federal dollar that's been available to us, when other states have turned money back in because they did not have the matching funds or weren't going to do a project, we went after all that money as well. So you've got a team that's been extremely successful uh, in terms of going after federal dollars and if we weren't good caretakers of that public money, we would not have had then afforded that opportunity again. So I think if you were to bring in your guests from the federal side, you'd find out that there's a tremendous amount of respect for the way that we handle things and the fact that we're able to get these things accomplished here in Connecticut. Actually, Congressman Courtney was here recently. <laughs> he was here a couple <laughs> weeks ago, actually. Yes. You know, that's the one thing, I, if you see me <laughs> laughing, is because there isn't a congressperson out there that I don't stay in contact with, okay? And, um, you know, th they are quick to remind me of every opportunity that's out there. And they've, I mean it, you know, I, I say this with, with um, the, the intent that everyone out there wonders whether or not their congressional delegation and their representatives are doing what is necessary. And I'm here to tell you, of course they are. I have never seen anything near where we are today Okay, and the opportunity that we have, and I am extremely grateful to our congressional, as well as, you know, our representatives, our senators and representatives here in the state who mm -hmm. have to, again, come up with the matching dollars so that we can be able to move forward and go after these federal funds. So we, we're very, very fortunate here with some extremely conscientious representatives that turn around and make sure that we're okay as a state. Now, as far as the infrastructure bill sure. and what the president passed today, what exactly does that mean for the state of Connecticut? What's well, I just told you about the well, first five billion and where right. it's going to go. So okay. that's why, you know, to everybody, if you have a chance to go on the website, take a look at, at Time for Connecticut. Um, it's been out there. Um, I'm sure you can uh, also post the links on, on your website yep. for us as well. Because right. it lists all the projects that we already, you know, the, the new words are that it's shovel-worthy. Um, and we have come up with uh, quite a few projects that are there. Okay. Um, the, the challenge, well, let's not get into challenge yet. You, you still want to keep it on the fact of what sure. does the bill mean? And the bill means that 
um, where before we would have had to stage things out for the next 20 years. We now are moving everything up into the next five years, okay, being able to go and get these projects done. So whether or not you're talking about the fact that we have to look at, you know, going down I-91 and the fact that every single day and every, every evening and particularly on the weekends, that, that merge onto 691 and 15 becomes a massive backup. The fact that we have those same type of issues going into West Haven on 95, or the fact of what we have for backups between the state line and Stanford, or in the opposite direction in the evening, the backups we have going on to Route 7, and what are the things we can go and do that will help on that end. The fact that we'll be able to go and purchase new rail cars, um, the fact that we are already purchasing uh, new buses and electric buses and we're trying to get some more grants for that even right now and there's some that I can't announce yet until I find out how we're doing, uh, but we are going after, you know, we want to make our air quality better. So you're going to see a lot more of the, you know, move towards the electric buses. And you've already seen in this bill, there's an awful lot that's in there in terms of uh, not only equity, but it's social consciousness from the standpoint of making it more, um, the air quality to be better because we're going to start moving more and more away from the uh, gas burning cars. We're going to be looking at putting on more charging stations into our, our uh, system. Uh, more abilities for the trucks to be able to pull over and meet the federal requirements for how far they can drive and being able to be able to pull off the road to be able to uh, get their rest areas in at the prescribed amount of time. So a lot of projects in there and they cover every end. They cover everything from, you know, trails and bikes to, you know, our, our highway system, our rail systems and our bus systems. Uh, there's nothing that's left untouched in this bill going forward. Do you mind sticking around for another segment? Not at all. All right, we'll be right back. Information is power, especially in times of uncertainty. In the age of 24-7 breaking news headlines, viral tweets, and social media rumors, we all need to take extra steps to verify information before accepting and sharing what we read online. Whether inaccurate information is purposely posted to deceive or defraud individuals or shared unknowingly by people who believe it's true, Misinformation can be dangerous. Is there a vaccine? Are certain blood types immune? Are additional stimulus checks coming? When will we open back up? Questions are expected. And they deserve accurate answers. We need you to rely on information from official sources and credible subject matter experts. For both Connecticut-specific information and federal resources, visit ct.gov backslash coronavirus. Contact tracing is one of the best voluntary ways to stop the spread of COVID-19, and information provided will be kept private. But imposters might pretend to be contact tracers to get access to your personal information or money. Real contact tracers will never ask for your social security number or financial information. You'll receive text or emails from contact tracers only if you have opted in. If you don't recognize the tracer's phone number, contact your local health department. To learn more about contact tracing, please visit portal.ct.gov slash coronavirus slash contact. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Pete Mazzetti Show. I'm Pete Mazzetti sitting here with DOT Commissioner Joe Giletti. Commissioner Giletti, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me thank back. Thank you. Thanks for sticking <laughs> around. So, Commissioner Giletti, let's, let's open up this segment talking about as far as jobs in the state of Connecticut and what's going on as far as that aspect. 
You know that with every good story, there's also another part of it that I'll call the challenges. Right. Right. So one of the challenges that's in front of us right now that we knew was coming, with the change in the retirement system and everything else, a lot of our employees statewide, not just at the DOT, are looking at the fact that they have to leave before next year to stay in the program that they're currently under. For just the DOT, I'll use my agency as the example, sure. we will lose somewhere between 30 and 40% of our workforce oh, wow. in the next year. So I'm looking at conservatively about 1,200 positions opening up. Uh, mm -hmm. So for everybody that's out there, uh, if you're at the universities, both in our state and other states, you know full well that we're reaching out to you. We're telling you about the opportunities that are here. Um, you know, I, I want to emphasize, not just at the universities, but at the high schools, too, that we're reaching out to go and talk about what careers are like working at the state, and obviously, selfishly, at our DOT. Mm -hmm. You know, you talk about rail systems. You know, it used to be that everybody thought of the rail system, and all they think about is the locomotive engineer and the conductor that's there on the train, and maybe they might think about a track worker. Right. But you know, these rail cars today, they're loaded with communication devices. There's an awful lot of IT information into them. We've got everything from electrical engineering to computers that are on board that have to be worked with. You know, it's, it's so diverse and so exciting that Almost every time we've brought people in on, uh, you know, coming to, to go and do a pilot with us or to go through a, a program with us, an internship, they end up being very, very excited, excited and sticking around. But the thing that we're dealing with right now as a state, which every state is dealing with, a lot of people have been off through the pandemic. There's a lot of openings all the way around. I've recently talked with the engineering groups that are out there and the, and the uh, consulting groups that are out there to talk about the fact that I can't possibly hire in the amount of time that's given enough people to handle all the work that's in front of us. So there's gonna be a lot of work too for consultants and contractors that are out there. And these are good paying jobs, both at, at the state level and, and with our uh, community of workers that are out there. So I'm gonna say to everybody, if you haven't had a chance to go on to the website to go and see what the jobs are, please go and check because you know we're looking for people that are interested in challenging careers and careers that expand, go through the entire gamut, everything from a bridge design to a highway design to a rail design to, you know, how do you maintain cars? How do you turn around and, and um, you know, our, our truck drivers that are gonna be keeping our roads clear as well as doing the maintenance of the, of the, um, the side roads and the, and the approaches and doing the lawn mowing and doing the, you know, we're, we're now gotten involved as well in, in turning around and trying to protect the butterflies and, and the bees by providing more uh, pollinating areas that, that are sitting out there. Everything that we can to be environmentally responsive, but also the types of jobs that people go into and you can spend an entire career doing. And even if you don't wanna spend an entire career come on over, it's a great way to learn about an awful lot of different positions, an awful lot of challenges, and from there, you know, I'd like to think that you started a DOT, and if you wanna go to the consulting or the contracting world later on, by all means, but right now, one of our 
like I said, it's a mixed bag because we compete as well with the private sector for those jobs coming in. So whether or not it's rail jobs, it's bus jobs, it's highway jobs, it's engineering jobs, these are all the jobs that are opening up right now and all the opportunity that's out there for people. And the good thing right now, you heard me talking a little bit about the federal involvement and what the state has done for yeah. matching funds. Yeah. We know right now that the money that we have just for the next five years is going to keep a tremendous volume of work for 10 to 20 years, all right? And obviously, as we're going through this, we're going to be looking to prove, one, that we can handle what's coming at us, and two, that we'll be looking for more funds to keep more jobs going as we go out there. So um, if I have any word out there that I, I need to impress, Pete, Mm -hmm. You can help me by letting everybody know. Take a look at your, you know, let, take a look at your state and the number of state jobs that are available to you out there that, uh, you know, will offer you opportunities while you're sitting in school and whether or not you're in high school and want to come on over and, and work with us in the summer and see what the jobs are like, whether or not you want to make it a, a career from that end or make it a career on different types of jobs. We've got a lot of jobs that are opening up. Now, are you guys back to working remotely in at the office or is it everything We're still, back in person? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been in the newspapers that there's still um, somewhere in the vicinity of 50% uh, of the time that we're at the office. We're looking to go and increase that, oh. um, you know, because, you know, as the work demand goes up, so does our, our need to go and have more and more people at the office. More and more offices are opening up. So, um, you know, I'm back at the office full time. Almost, you know, I would say well over, um, most of the people are well above the 50% mark in terms of the amount of time they're at the office right now. Now, we, we talked about, let's, let's focus on the rail. Let's talk about the <laughs> time. Do you have a bias there for the rail there? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, I don't know, but you're, you're a regular bus rider I as know, well. I, so. yeah. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about buses. Sure. Let's talk about buses. And like you, like you, like you, like you mentioned, I actually am a local bus rider with Nine Town Transit every morning, which is yeah. the tra local transit district down here that covers the shoreline. Well, you know, the, the nice thing right now with, you know, I, I talk all the time about a governor that's been extremely progressive yes. and demanding. You know, okay, he, okay. He, he told me from day number one he wanted to see that we could get uh, faster services mm -hmm. out there on the rail systems. Yeah. You know, how can we improve that? But the other end of it is that there's, for a state our size, we have to be looking at how do we integrate all of these systems. Right. You know, we sit down with DEEP and we talk about, you know, how do we turn around and make sure that we're being environmentally conscious on everything that we're going to do. Yeah. We sit down with the Department of Housing because as new housing developments go up, instead of putting up a housing development and then saying how do we get transportation to it, <laughs> we sit down ahead of time now and look at where can we put in housing that ties in with transportation systems? And we're looking at, in every one of our cities right now, as well as in the suburbs, mm -hmm. how can we reorient our bus systems so that they're serving the communities to get the maximum amount of exposure to the maximum number of people that are out there to connect people to their homes, their businesses. You've heard about the, the new generation wanting livable, workable communities. Yeah. Well, it has to go beyond that. Right. You know, we have to have ways for you to go from a bus system, mm -hmm. if you need to get onto a rail system, if you need to get to the hospital, if you need to go to a major employment hub. This is what we've been working on in terms of how do we make these systems all integrated. And I think the governor is right when he says a state this size, we should be able to take a good look at that. and. You know, 
prior to my coming here, I was tremendously impressed with the fast track busing that they put in. It goes okay. out to Bristol, right? Yeah. You go there, it's, it's basically a train station, okay, on a viaduct that they're running buses on. Now, someday in the future, when the numbers get up that high, that'll lend itself very nicely to being a light rail system. But in the meantime, if, for example, you go to New Britain, that mayor has already been able to kick off three TODs because businesses believe that those are permanent and they're able, they're willing to go and establish businesses around those hubs. And these are the types of things that, that's why I say when I get together with the housing commissioner, we talk about where does it make sense to coordinate our efforts so that way they were looking at the best ways to provide transportation to the greatest amount of people that are out there. Now, what is a TOD? Transit-oriented development. You, you know, catch me on those things because you know you get used to these things in uh, in terms of our industry. But That's okay. Yeah, you you want to turn around. Like right now, there's been a lot of discussion about you know when you've got large parking lots that that are near mass transit centers, can we turn around and change some of those so that it's both a housing, you know, um, you know, light shops and everything else, and you know, parking. Used to be nobody wanted to be near a rail system more and more people want to be closer to mass transit systems okay people are giving up the car and more and more you're seeing cars are turning to electric vehicles all the articles now europe as well talking about you know cleaning up the air and getting away from these you know uh, gas and carbon producing vehicles and making our air cleaner by going to more and more of the electric and you know as you know our rail system all the way to boston yeah. and new york is all electric. well down to washington is all electric Someday, we hope that as well, the Hartford line would become all electric as well, so we can go and combine that in. I, rem I remember I was in Boston a couple years ago, taking my nieces back to the airport. So I took, took, took the train yep. from Old Saybrook to Boston. South Station, yep. Took the T yep. from the T station to the airport, got on the, got on the bus, but what amazed me the bus stops in the middle of the route, switches over to electric power. The buses were electric at that point because the, the, it stops and the operator was like, we're now switching over to electric power. It'll be about 10 seconds and then you'll hear hear everything kick on and then we'll continue the trip. I'm well, like, if you remember. That's weird. I'm like, that's, that's cool. When, when they were electrifying from New Haven to Boston with the effects that, because you used to lose 30 minutes when you had to change power in New Haven to yeah. go to the diesel to take you to Boston. And then they electrified all the way to Boston. So you no longer lost that time. Now they're talking about going south of Washington and be able to electrify further down that way. So you, again, do not lose the ability to have to spend the time to go and change over to diesel. Right. Well, the things we're finding now with buses, like, you know, there was a time I was dealing with a trolley system and we were worried about the catenary system and not carrying a catenary system over a drawbridge. How were we going to do it? Well, now these vehicles that are out there, the batteries have gotten so terrific that not, not only can they do passive charging, but they're able to go much further now. So you can have buses that run total electric and come back in for a charge or come in at midday for a charge. So where you used to have to make sure you had an electric grid to go and handle it, that's not the same today. And it's changing so rapidly in terms of what they're able to do with the batteries. Look at what's happened with cars. They now have cars that can go 300 miles and they're talking about going 500 miles yeah. before they have to be charged again. So the same thing is going on. 
Uh, just was at a conference down in Orlando, and out of the dozen buses that were there, at least 10 of them had to be all electric, showing that they, you know, what the range is now with an electric bus going through. And what a difference it'll make for our cities to not have, you know, the, the diesel out there, um, you know, even though, you know, almost all of our diesels we're trying to be environmentally responsible with, but it's so much nicer to be able to look at battery powered and be able to go from that end. Though there still is the, you know, what it takes to go and provide the electric for, for that and what's going to happen with our national grid for that. Now, what is the catenary system? The catenary system right now, in, and, you know, we talk about it from, you know, uh, you're over here on the shoreline, so you know right now the overhead wire is called a catenary system. Okay. okay? Uh, what we use over here, we modeled after, after England where we use a constant tension. So remember there was a long time of construction, first with putting up the catenary systems long before I ever started but then putting in a constant tension because the problem they always had with the electric wire was the same thing as the rail bed. When it got very hot in the summer, the wire would expand, the, cat, the pantograph, which is on the roof of the car, okay. would get caught in the wire and you'd spend all kinds of time trying to recover from a catenary you know, a disaster, I'll call it, okay. because it would pull all the wires down and then you'd have to come back. So now, Every so often, is the way I'll explain it, they have weights that are suspended and the catenary is basically on a pulley system. Sure. So as it gets hot, the weights drop down a little bit more and it keeps the wire in profile. When uh -huh. it gets cold, it goes up, it keeps the wire in profile. So, and that's the idea behind it, is that way there you don't lose the catenary because of the differences in temperature, especially in an area like we're in where there are temperature extremes that go on. You know what absolutely amazes me? Recently I was on the transportation line around here and they are everything as far as payment now is being done through an app you know you, you talk about that we're actually looking <laughs> at you're you are right uh, we need the apps to be able to talk to each other the same way that on the highway system right. now you can take your easy pass and go all the way down to florida or if you're in florida you can take your sun pass and come all the way up here all right because the apps are able to talk to each other yeah uh, recently, we've been notified that there's more and more credit cards are looking into ways you won't even have to do an app, and they'll be able to turn around and identify the system you're going on and get you the maximum discounts for that system by tapping on with that credit card. So we're looking into, the, into that. So the future may even take us beyond the apps to where you know we're going to be able to do that going forward. But it is true. We have apps right now. You go on Metro North, you can actually look at the train that's coming in and find out where is the least crowded car because technology has taken us to the level that they can tell the weight in each one of the cars and know how full that car is by really? how much this, the springs have been you know, compressed on it and be able to tell you when that train is coming in where the best place to go and get seats are based on loading before the train even pulls in. Oh, wow. And now with the positive train control system as well, we're able to track where every single train is, where it's going, okay? So you, your information that you're getting at every one of your stations mm -hmm. turns around and is the most accurate information you can get because we're getting it straight from the GPS system feeding in, which will again feed right into an app in when we provide the, the app access to it. Yeah. So we're excited about that. We're also excited that there's been a lot of change as well in terms of um, what's available for bus shelters and, and what okay. has been happening with solar power on that end and communication levels to keep people notified. Because one of the hardest things is being out there at a bus stop and not really knowing where the bus is or when the bus is going to get there. Exactly. And you know, if you can give information out, and that's the total intent of all this, 
to get as much information into the user's hands as possible for them to be able to make the best decisions on what's the best mode of traffic for them. Absolutely. You're best mode of transportation traffic. Exactly. Yeah. Traffic transportation. And you're, you're absolutely right, especially because you don't want to be standing out in the freezing cold waiting for a bus. It's like, okay, when is it coming? When is it coming? When or the other end of it is that if you know that you still have a you know, warm spot to be in, right. how long you can stay in that warm spot. <laughs> exactly. So, But let me talk one second, if you don't yeah, mind, yeah. a little bit about one of the things we got going on on the highway side. Sure. Thanks again to our federal partners. Um, we now not only have a lot of cameras that are out there, uh, what we're going to, you know, those of you who pull up to a traffic light, and you sometimes see those squares down in the pavement, okay, and you know that it's when you pull onto that square that it triggers the traffic light. I will call it one of the disappointments when I first came here, and I don't mean it a disappointment against the people that were there, because it's amazing that they kept the system going. Our way of knowing whether or not a signal went out was after people called up and said, hey, the signal isn't working at such and such a location, and we would have to send people out with a laptop with DOS programming to go and reprogram that light to go and get it to work. So the governor turned around and he's, he's actually pushed, again, one of those things he's pushed hard on. We're going to intelligent traffic lights as well. Okay. Those in traffic lights will not only have the ability to use cameras to detect when a vehicle is there. So you don't have to worry about the loops. You don't have to worry about the snow being on the loops or plowing through the loops. Right. It will detect the cars that are there. It will also have the ability that if a game got out, okay, and you've got a whole line of traffic coming along, it'll start programming each of the lights to get that traffic to the Marist Highway System so that it keeps the traffic moving along without intervention, but will also get a signal telling us what's going on at our headquarters. We've got two locations where we've got all these cameras feeding in to both us and the state police so we can watch what's going on and be able to make modifications based on that. So that'll be going in. You'll start seeing that more and more. The first tests are going in right now on the Berlin Turnpike, and you're going to see more and more of this out there as we get to the point that you know, you'd like to get it to where cars don't stop or have to stop when there's no other car around. We keep our traffic moving and therefore you're also helping the environment by not doing that constant stop and go, uh, which again leads to another thing that our, our highway department is doing is the rotaries. Okay. I was not crazy about rotaries when I first got on them, but then you have to understand that where there are rotaries, um, because it makes sense for a rotary there. Not enough traffic to generate the next level of what you want, but the other part of it is it keeps things moving. So as you go into the rotary, there's two benefits that you get. One, you don't come to a stop unless there happens to be a car right in front of you. You're able to keep moving through a rotary. Two, when you have an accident in a rotary, it's a side swipe as opposed to a T-bone. Saves lives. So again, a very, very effective way that as you know, we've talked with all the other states, the success rate that's been there, the, the decline in fatalities, again, a very, very conscientious way of looking at where does this make sense and what is the best mode for dealing with an intersection take place, and that's what we try to look at as we're going through and redesigning them. So when you talk again about where does your money go, where does the federal money go, traffic lights, rotaries, you know, um, you know pedestrian-friendly ways, bike ways that we're putting in, you know, all this is what, what uh, we end up doing with that federal money, and again, with the overall intention of making it as bike, pedestrian, and car friendly as we possibly can and being conscious with the public's money. Now, a friend of mine was the state trooper down at Troop G in Bridgeport. Oh, okay. And Bridge yeah. he actually 
right before the pandemic took me for a ride along for the day. And he actually showed me the room that so they you've had. been in there. Uh huh. <laughs> well, now you got to come over to Newington, okay? I was going to say, yeah, yes, it you're, was you're overdue. Im- you it know? was pretty impressive. I was impressed. He looked at me. He's like, check. he's like, come on in. I'm like, what? He's like, check this out. I'm like, so we walk into this room, and there's just cameras. Behind. He's like, this is the DOT room. He's like, there's a couple people sitting here just watching the flow of traffic and all the different cameras. It was basically a wall of traffic cameras. That's exactly what it is. It's like, this is cool. Yeah, we now, we now not only have that wall in Newington, but we're able to take all those cameras, we can combine them, we can isolate them, we can set up a separate room when we've got a snowstorm situation and focus it on those areas that we have to immediately get to. Yeah. Um, it works out very well from that end. Um, Federal Highway's been over there again, checking to see that their money was put to good use. They were able to see where we're able to work with the state police on this. It gives us tremendous uh, information. And if you um, are watching in a snowstorm and they turn around and they show you those pictures of the highways, (laughs) other than when they're putting up their own drones, Mm -hmm. you'll see at the bottom courtesy of, you know, the state of Connecticut because we provide that access as well. And uh, there is even public access to be able to look at some of those those, cameras as well as you know because we want to get that information out again our overall objective is to give as much information as we can for people to make their best decisions going forward so you've got a room like that up in newington huh? oh my goodness yes wait wait till you come and see i was it. gonna say i that sounds, like an, that sounds like an invitation for it me to come up to newington is, yes and bring your cameras so you can show you know their public you know uh, and your audience what it is that their dot is doing and where the dollars are going to and you know again how well you know those dollars are being spent and what not only is there now but what it is allowing for the future like i said intelligent uh traffic signals being able to do it that way being able to move traffic along okay making sure that we're doing everything we can to not cause the backups that are there the same way that we moved as much work as we could tonight's again to try and minimize the impact on the rush hours uh, which are constantly changing now as far as winter and snowstorms go mm-hmm. is everything in when a when a plow, when a dot trucks out plowing snow is ever i'm assuming everything in the cab of the truck as far as what's going on is everything's all computerized correct? yeah it's you know again because thank you for bringing that up yes. because when i first came there were a lot of discussions about you know how efficient that that uh that work was whether or not it was as efficient as possible whether or not we had more personnel than was really necessary uh, you should the next time you go by there's very few of the trucks that are going to have two people in it uh, they have one person in because they're now able to there's a computer inside that that truck that's sending information back to headquarters mm-hmm. so not only do we know where the truck is and what's going on it turns around and because we're trying to be environmentally conscious Uh, So a lot of people ask, why is it that you're using the saline solution, okay, as opposed to the dirt that, you know, we used to drop down? Uh, One, because the dirt, okay, didn't do as effective a job. The saline you can put down before the storm gets there if you know what kind of storm it's going to be and what the road temperatures are. Um, It makes sure that that pavement is as dry as possible. 
The other part is that they know if the storm is going to end with an ice storm that they've got to leave a little bit of snow down there so that way there when the ice goes to form they can plow the ice off because otherwise you'll leave a, a slick yeah, highway. That's gonna be a so it's ice. all down to a, to a science. Uh, the driver is going along, the, the computers are measuring out just how much product to put down and the other end of it when we put the sand down. It was declared that the sand that goes down because of you know the fact that there's you know tire there's oil there's other things on the road you have to treat it as a hazardous material to go and vacuum it up and one of the worst things to try and maintain are vac trucks and when that sand goes down and blocks the culverts it causes blockages that go back into the towns we have to constantly it becomes a constant nightmare to go and deal with that so there was a very valid reason behind going to the saline and we'd never use more than we absolutely have to in order to make sure that we're making those roads safe as we go through. Now, what exactly is the solution that is being... Saline. It's basically it's about, about the same amount of salt that is in a tear. Okay. okay. So that's why I say it's, it's uh, you know, it's in, uh, uh, the best way that the industry knows to handle conditions that are in the north with the snow and the ice that we get. Now, we've got a little bit more time left, though, so... Your choice, what, else, what do we want to talk about? We got about a minute and a half left. So in the last minute and a half, I would turn around and the, the thing that I, the, you know, I always feel is important to mention, you know, um, the governor in the last snowstorm turned around and said, you know, I hope you appreciate all the people that are out there working on the roads. He actually said, if you see them out there, maybe you should bring them out some cookies. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna tell you to bring out cookies, but I am gonna say, you know, um, one of the complaints I used to get is that they would see a truck out there and they say that the person just sat in the truck. Well, that's our crash truck that's there for when cars come along. And you can imagine with the speeds that we've got out there, I don't want to tell you how many times in a year that crash truck has been hit. So I'm very, very concerned that we get a message out there to please drive safely, okay? Be concerned for the workers out there, whether they're state workers or they're, they're contractors that are out there. And the other thing is, you know, I, I've said it as part of this, we owe a debt of gratitude to both our congressional and our state representatives. Yep. Uh, they've done a fantastic job. We are now sitting in, in with opportunities we've never had before in terms of funding. And I think it's very important that that message gets out there and as well as my personal message to all the state workers, not just at DOT, whether or not state police, whether or not you work in the Department of Children and Families, Department of Housing, Department of Energy, and the Environmental and Energy Protection, they're all there to make sure that we've done the right thing with the public's money and we've been good stewards of that public's money. So I'm indebted to all the employees that are out there. Uh, our teams are fantastic and uh, I just hope that that message comes across clearly. And I thank you for the opportunity to go and be able to say these things. No problem. Thank you, Pete. Thanks, Joe. I'm, well, Joe, before we say goodnight, I want to thank you for coming on because we're almost out of time, but hopefully we'll see you again soon. That sounds very good. And, right. you know, now don't forget, you've mm. already made a commitment. You're going to come over and look at the That's uh, right. i got to come camera. up look at the cameras. <laughs> very good. Thank you. On behalf oh, of Joe Gilletti, I'm Pete Mazzetti. Thanks. <laughs> goodnight. And we'll see you next time.